And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth, where Democrats are believing increasingly that there's nothing they can do to push Joe Biden aside. He seems determined, and there's lots of writing about this recently, to run for president a second time, even uh, if his health is not the greatest and his age makes him a very dubious standard bearer. But one thing that he could do to increase his chances of having a, at least a close and very competitive election is to have a better and more adequate running mate. We'll talk to reporter Chris Saliza about the Kamala question and possible answers uh, that might actually work for that particular dilemma. Uh, but first up, uh, we have a Call of the Week classic. The Call of the Week. I get so overwhelmed. Like, I don't understand. It's educational. Like, everyone goes to the bathroom on campus every day, unless they have some great powers. It's informative. Your talk show creates a hostile environment. Feel the love. I love Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro, please keep it up. Hear the hate. And you're the devil. You're, you're the big Hitler. Every Friday exclusively on The Michael Medved Show. And the winner is... The winner is from September 2010. Uh, and James in Milwaukee, who was attempting to explain his formula. For what? Listen, try to figure it out. Okay, I got a I got a formula for all you religious people. I would like for you to figure out your great grandparents and how many you had in the past. And it's an amazing number. Um, if you go back to Jesus's time, two thousand years ago, which would be your twentieth grandparent, it's in the million. Two million ninety-seven thousand one hundred fifty-two. Now back to Islam. It's manifest destiny, isn't it? Where the idea that it is the will of God for the United States to extend from the Atlantic to the Pacific. In other words, they're carrying out, you know, the manifest destiny. The finances behind them right now are the same finances that were probably behind the structure of manifest destiny back in, oh, 1846, 1848. What are you talking about? To make it clear, uh, you got to look at the religious theory that I have. Uh -oh. And that's to figure out your great-grandparents. Okay. Now, obviously, that's... What do you mean, figure out your great-grandparents? Well, this is my point, that 2,000 years ago, you alone, your relatives, totaled in the millions. I want you to listen now. 3,000 years ago, your, you personally, Mike, your grandparents, your 30th grandparent, totaled 4,294,967,296. I, I don't think and Mike, so. it don't stop there. No, no back, it, it does stop there. Back there weren't that many people ago. on Earth at that time. I can't let the man continue with fuzzy math. Four to make those two. No, that, that, somehow your math is wrong. you, you got to go back to the computer. You alone had that All many right. relatives. <laughs> when the caveman peeked out of the cave, he seen, you want me to tell you exactly what he seen? They're what, alive. Did, what did the caveman see when he peeked out of the cave? 4,000 years ago, he seen 1,099,511,626,000 and 176 of your grandparents. Oh, stop it! Okay, only, only if that he was a drinking a lot. You sounded drunk or something on the radio. What <laughs> trillion people on the planet? Please hang up and try your call again. Jamie in Milwaukee. Jamie, what is it now? 
can, can you can you can you make some sense here? Yeah, Mike. Uh, why'd you hang up on me, Mike? Because you, you weren't making any sense. You were talking idiocy. If you believed you had a mom and dad, and you believed they had moms and dads, then take it back logically in a formula that would say, well, when were they born? When? Because every mom was alive, giving birth to all the children during the segments of my formula. Okay, your, your formula somehow doesn't work. Take it back logically in a formula that would say two million ninety-seven thousand one hundred fifty-two. Four billion two hundred and ninety-four million nine hundred and sixty-seven thousand two hundred and ninety-six. Uh, One trillion ninety-nine billion five hundred and eleven million six hundred and twenty-six thousand and one hundred and seventy-six. This call is worthwhile to you, even though it's not worthwhile to me or to any of our listeners. <laughs> There's a, a a little bit of a mistake at the heart of uh, the caller from Milwaukee's uh, approach here. What he's trying to do is to uh, say that basically uh, every individual has two parents. But what he's forgetting is every individual also has brothers and sisters. And most families uh, over the years, over the millennia, it isn't just... uh, two parents that it takes to produce somebody and then those two parents that would have required four grandparents you have families with lots of kids and the population of the world has not been going down I mean it's it's never gone down and it may that's a a real problem and we have a real problem with uh, particularly in countries like Russia and Japan where they're not producing enough kids. But thank God that that hasn't been a problem over human history. And anyone who thinks that there were at one point a trillion people, that's uh, a thousand billion people uh, who lived on planet Earth, who's actually used mathematical formulae to produce this idea that there were a trillion people living on this planet. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, the planet, particularly with the limited technology that existed uh, millennia ago, uh, that it could have uh, supported a trillion people. Um, Certainly not if, uh, (laughs) if they had the same approach toward human comprehension that we just heard. Uh, Meanwhile, there's a a fascinating piece that uh, uh, appeared and that I think has a very, very important message. It's a piece by a 16-year-old boy who's in high school now. His name is Gideon Modisette. And uh, the piece is called, You Can Be Addicted to Weed. I was when I was 12. And it tells a scary and alarming story. And the subtitle says, Boomers who fought for legalization have no idea how dangerous marijuana is today because it's very different today from the way that marijuana was back in the 60s or 70s when often the older generation uh, got hooked. And yes, it is possible to get hooked uh, and to become addicted to this particular uh, this particular drug and here's what he writes at the end of his piece he says here's the reality 
I don't know anyone 15 or 16 today who hasn't smoked. And they all know it's not like their father's or grandfather's weed. It's much stronger, and the consequences of smoking are getting worse. Marijuana use disorder, as the experts call it, is now four to seven times likelier among people who smoke when they're minors. Cannabis-related hospitalizations have increased significantly in the past decade, tripling among 18 to 25-year-olds. Meanwhile, older people with hazy memories of getting high in their dorm rooms four or five decades ago insist weed is safe, a recreational drug. The message seems to be that it's weird or backward to say anything bad about weed. I'm now 16, he says, the same age that Martin was when we met, and tomorrow is the eve of Rosh Hashanah, the start of the Jewish New Year. And even though I'm not especially religious, I've been looking forward to the high holidays for months. Why? To make a resolution, to make a difference, citing his own experience to other people. A very appropriate way to honor the upcoming Jewish New Year. So what do you do with uh, Kamala Harris? We'll confront that with Chris Saliza coming up on The Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, it's a good time to confront the Kamala question. And what is the Kamala question? The question uh, that has been put forward by a lot of commentators, including David Ignatius, who we talked about yesterday. Uh, The Kamala question is, how do you get her off the ticket? Why is that particularly important? And what is likely to happen about it? Uh, Those are questions that are confronted in a very provocative piece by Chris Saliza, a veteran reporter. His information is posted at our website. Uh, You can uh, read his most recent commentaries at chrissaliza.substack.com. He's the author most recently of a book uh, that's great fun to read. It's called Power Players sports, politics, and the American presidency. Uh, Okay, the reasons that people think that uh, Kamala needs to go, there are two reasons that that you lay them out in your piece. Number one, that uh, she is simply not well-liked by a majority of the country, which is a major problem, uh, you say, when voters have big concerns about Biden's age. And the other point you make is uh, related. Uh, She is in a position unique among our vice presidents historically, you write, the man under whom she serves is 80 years old. So um, uh, why do you think it is unlikely, given all this, that Joe Biden can do anything to replace his vice president with a more effective, more attractive to voters option. 
Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, I, so I think the answer to that, I can sum up in one word, chaos. I think if, if Biden did try to swap Kamala Harris out, I think it would give off the whiff of panic of needing to change the team right before the game starts. Um, I think there are, as you laid out, I think there are real questions surrounding Harris and surrounding what uh, she can bring to the ticket. You know, does she hurt the ticket? I just think the message that would be sent by substituting her off the ticket, not not to mention the potential damage that could be done with African-American voters. Obviously, Kamala Harris, the first black woman to ever be vice president. I just think it's too big a risk and sends too much of a message of chaos and panic. So I think at the end of the day, look, I am. is there a world in which Joe Biden thinks about it? Sure. Is there a world in which he does it? I'm much more skeptical of that. Well, you bring up the point in uh, your piece, which is true, is that there was reporting that said that when Barack Obama was getting ready to run for re-election, in 2012, and everybody knew there was going to be a competitive race to, for him to win a second term, uh, that he was thinking about dumping Joe Biden from the ticket right. and replacing him with Hillary Clinton. What was the thinking like, behind that? Well, the thinking was, you know, Biden is kind of, it's funny, it, this is a long time ago, but Biden's kind of old. He doesn't bring that much to the ticket. Is there someone who could bring more? I mean, this is a perennial, quadrennial question. Every four years, whoever the VP, whoever the president is, and they're running for re-election, the conversation almost inevitably winds up being about should they replace the VP. I think it's, in some ways, I think it's sort of a fun parlor game. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a thing to talk about and think about. I just don't think, I mean, I know for a fact it does not happen nearly at the rate that we say. You know, I can remember going back to 2096, every, every four years there is a story that says, like, should George W. Bush change out Dick Cheney for someone more dynamic or someone who helps them more electorally? And it never happens. And so that's another reason why I think Biden doesn't do it. I think this is the time where Democrats are looking at the ticket. They're looking at Biden's numbers. They look at Kamala Harris's numbers, which are worse than Biden's, even though Biden's are quite bad. And uh, they say, God, do we need to do something? Do we need to change something? Can we change something now before it's too late? I think the answer to that is no, you probably can't, because anytime that change would bring problems that uh, either unintended or intended, but problems that you didn't foresee and create other issues for you. So I think at the end of the day, he sticks with the team that he's got. Okay, but will the Democrats nationwide stick with the Biden-Harris team? This is is one of the the, the situations that it, it seems to me the the level of panic on the Democratic side is getting fairly intense, especially yes. with the uh, upcoming uh, trial of a uh, Hunter Biden. And uh, is it too late? for somebody to attempt and say it's Governor Newsom of California mm -hmm. or Governor Whitmer mm -hmm. of Michigan better. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of those governors and either he or she then picks a running mate uh, in advance and enters the lists and gets into the New Hampshire primary, gets into the South Carolina primary. And so, if uh, yep. that candidate uh, challenges... Uh, Joe Biden uh, aggressively, is, is there not a chance that Joe Biden would withdraw? 
Um, there's always a chance. I've learned that from the 2016 election of Donald Trump. I never say never. Um, I think it is very, very unlikely. I think Joe Biden is all in on running. I know the establishment of the party, uh, and by establishment, I mean elected officials and the like, are behind him. Uh, I think it would be very hard to get in now. It's not impossible. You could still qualify for the ballot, right? So technically, it's still possible. I think it would be a longer shot than you might think. I think it's hard to beat an incumbent president, even one that is damaged, uh, that does have issues about his age and his competence that Joe Biden does. I, I still think it would be a long shot. I think Gavin Newsom, I think Gretchen Whitmer, I think they look at this and they say it's a it's no matter what happens in 2024, the 2028 Democratic race is open, right? If Joe Biden wins again, he's term limited out. Obviously, if Donald Trump or some other Republican wins, the, the seat will be open. Joe Biden wouldn't run again. So I think they <laughs> not at wait. age 86. No, no, not at um, age 86. So I think I think they wait. Um, but again, technically, they, you know, they can still qualify for the ballot. So technically, it could still happen. I just don't think practically it will. Right. Now, again, I, I think about the election of 1968, where Eugene McCarthy did not win the New Hampshire primary. Uh, coming out of nowhere, he got 43 percent against President Johnson. So he lost in the landslide, 57 to 43. But that was enough to push Lyndon Johnson out of the race because, uh, well... I mean, it looked like he was going to have a real fight, and then Robert Kennedy came in. Um, the the idea that uh, right now we are uh, condemned to only Biden and only Trump, surely there must be something that Americans can do or at least hope to do in response. The excellent piece by Chris Eliza, The Kamala Question, uh, is posted at our website at michaelmedved.com. We'll be right back. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. It's open, it's expansive, it's welcoming, it's filled with light. This is The Michael Medved Show. I know that... Uh, when we talk about anything radical happening in this election, uh, you wonder, how is that even possible? How could you imagine it? When I say anything radical, I mean if uh, uh, President Trump or President Biden were to withdraw from the race, or one would hope both of them withdraw from the race and let us deal with a new generation of leadership, it really is about time. Uh, it's so inconceivable right now because we're so used to this idea that uh, Trump has a lock on the GOP nomination. Biden has a complete lock on the Democratic nomination. Certainly there's going to be no victory for Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, the reason that I, I think it's way early to jump to that conclusion is because of the example of 1968. And yes, now 1968 was a long time ago, but I think one could argue that 1968 things were more set in stone and the establishment was more powerful than it is today. 
today because of social media, because of the uh, all-day broadcasts and all of the channels, and you have uh, Newsmax and Fox and uh, MSNBC and CNN, and, and again, you have a whole political industry. But the important thing to remember here is that in 1968, Robert Kennedy declared for president in March of 1968. In other words, we are now in September. Uh, figure it out. If, if someone were to enter the race for president in March of next year, would that be too late? Well, probably because you have the, the uh, Iowa caucuses on March, uh, pardon me, on uh, January 15th. They have moved the whole date of primaries earlier. But if someone were to announce a race for president, and, and again, one of the Democrats who may have uh, presidential ambitions... Uh, people who have been storing up money for some kind of race at some point in the future. Maybe it's the race of 2028. I, uh, I, I, I think it is possible, it, at least conceivable, maybe not possible, but conceivable, that uh, we could have a situation where someone like uh, Gavin Newsom uh, or the governor of Mich Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, or any number of other people could look at this situation, particularly on the Democratic side with uh, Joe Biden, and step forward and offer an alternative. And uh, again, would there be money to do something like that? Probably. And uh, depending on how the polling went and how in on the Democratic side the first uh, – uh, primary is going to be not the Iowa caucuses, not New Hampshire primary. It's going to be South Carolina. And it's interesting, Joe Biden was concerned enough about the idea of some kind of challenge that he saw to it that they would change the order of the primaries because last time, you may remember, he won nothing. He did fifth, I think it was, in the Iowa caucuses and sixth in the New Hampshire primary. And then, of course, he won in a landslide with the help of James Clyburn and his friend in South Carolina, and the party came back from uh, a situation where Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders had been uh, the strongest runners in the early primaries. It it all means that uh, I think there is more unpredictability left in this presidential race than most people acknowledge. And there's always a good reason, it seems to me, to listen to Chris Christie. He was uh, speaking recently about the war in Ukraine and America's policy toward Ukraine. And it's very important to have his voice out there. And uh, here is uh, Chris Christie on one of the big foreign is policy issues of the day, clip two. I think Joe Biden has given them enough, just enough not to lose, but not enough to win. And so part of what I think we need to do here is to give the Ukrainians the ability to prosecute the war in the way they see fit, and then see how Russia reacts. 
It may be once we've armed Ukraine sufficiently for them to meet all of their strategic goals militarily that Russia still will not concede some of those areas. Well, then that's when you sit down and have a conversation with your ally about what's the best deal we can make here to bring this to a conclusion. But you can't convince them, the Ukrainians, it's in their interest to do that when you haven't given them the ability as they see it, and I think just given the numbers they're right, to be able to prosecute the war in as aggressive a way as it's being prosecuted against them. And so if we're in, we need to, to go all in from a hardware perspective. Okay, and we also need to send a signal. Listen. The other reason to do that, of course, Jordan, is the message it sends to China vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan and other areas in Asia, that they need to see that we are willing to stand up and allow an ally to have what they need to have to aggressively prosecute their own defense. And China's watching very closely on this front, and we need to send that message both as a country and as an alliance very clearly to them. Okay, there's also uh, concerning the Kamala question. There was an interchange on CNN between Jake Tapper and Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, uh, and where he was putting to uh, Representative Raskin exactly a question that Nancy Pelosi had very, very consistently dodged and still would never answer, which is, do you think Kamala Harris is the best possible running mate for Joe Biden? Uh, listen, clip eight. Do you think Vice President Kamala Harris is the best running mate for President Biden? And what do you make of Speaker Pelosi's answer there? I mean, there didn't seem to be anything wrong uh, with that answer. Obviously, um, President Biden, Vice President Harris, Speaker Pelosi, for that matter, all of us have been laboring under just a deluge of propaganda, disinformation and criticism by the MAGA right. Uh, this is a rule or ruin faction, which takes the position that if they're not going to be able to control the direction of government, they are going to throw grease in the gears to try to shut everything down. And what we're all dealing with right now is this impending September 30th deadline because the MAGA right wants and to shut down the you, government. You are doing what Speaker Pelosi did, which is not answering the question. Do you think Kamala Harris is the best running mate for President Biden? Is it, well, obviously, she, she gave the right answer. That's President Biden's choice. And I think she's an excellent running mate uh, for President Biden. Uh, okay. <laughs> he didn't say the best running mate for President Biden, which I guess he could have said, but it's a tough argument to make. Uh, there are some movies uh, that are out today, one of which is extraordinary, uh, both of which are actually pretty enjoyable. Uh, we will get to those films. Uh, a Million Miles Away, which is going to be showing on Amazon Prime, uh, tells a true story that I hadn't heard before, but it's an inspiring story that it seems to me uh, is exactly what America needs right now. Uh, we will get to that and to more. Uh, coming up, A Haunting in Venice, too, the latest uh, from the Hercule Poirot, Agatha Christie, Kenneth Branagh series. All coming up 
on the Medved Show. And we're going to say, we're not having that. We're not playing that. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, this is not only the Sabbath that begins tonight at sundown uh, through the vagaries of the Jewish calendar, Tonight is also the beginning of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, the beginning of the holiest season of the year, uh, what are called the Ten Days of Awe, the Yamim Naraim. And uh, that's uh, one of those festive times, particularly when it blends with the Sabbath. It also blends through the accidents of the Jewish uh, calendar with my brother's uh, birthday. My brother Jonathan is born tomorrow, uh, the first day of uh, Rosh Hashanah. Uh, By the way, I was born on the first day of Rosh Hashanah too, and so was our third Medved brother, which is a bizarre coincidence. But uh, (laughs) what does it mean? I don't know. But it means we have something in common to wish each other a happy birthday on. Also, Rosh Hashanah, part of what it celebrates is the creation of the world. And there's actually a passage in the liturgy that talks about uh, the uh, the celebration of the birthday, happy birthday to the entire world. There's also this, this is a, a Washington Post news alert. The Justice Department and Prosecutor Jack Smith are asking the judge overseeing Donald Trump's federal election fraud trial to impose some limitations on the former president's public comments saying he's trying to influence or frighten potential jurors. Uh, The defendants repeated inflammatory public statements regarding the District of Columbia, the court, prosecutors, and potential witnesses are substantially likely to materially prejudice the jury pool, create fear among potential jurors, and result in threats or harassment to individuals he singles out, the prosecutors said. Uh, There will be a response at some point from uh, Judge Chutkin, but I would guess that that will only be happening next week. Meanwhile, we have the latest from Hollywood. Okay, my favorite movie released uh, this week, and one of my favorite movies released this year, is called A Million Miles Away. Uh, It's inspiring, it's touching, it's about family, and best of all, it's a true and patriotic story. It's a story of somebody I had never heard of before, Jose Hernandez. Now, who's that? He's somebody who began life as a migrant farm worker, came up as a little boy uh, from Mexico with his family, Uh, They worked in the fields, he worked in the fields, but from the time of uh, the moon landing, he had become fascinated with a space program. And he nursed this uh, impossible idea of undergoing the transition from migrant worker to astronaut. And, uh, well, you you know the answer because I mentioned that the film is inspiring, and it is deeply inspiring. It's called A Million Miles Away, and it stars Michael Pena, a veteran Hollywood actor, and uh, Rosa Salazar plays his wife, who is a wonderful actress and a wonderful role, who manages to 
support her husband's dreams in a loving way. Listen. So, what's your big goal, dream? I want to be an astronaut. You're serious. I've wanted this for almost 30 years. Every decision I've made, I've made with the space program in mind. Who the hell are you? Uh, I'm Jose Hernandez, sir. I'm an engineer. You're the new guy, right? That third floor men's room needs toilet paper. Going to space, it's a stupid dream. It's never gonna happen. Those people who got into the program, what do they have that you don't? Over the last 10 years, I've applied to the space program 12 times, and I've been on the verge of giving up after each and every rejection. But you know what, sir? Here I am. So you could turn me down again, but rest assured, I'll be standing here again in a year. Uh, the uh, 12 different turndowns that he got from the space program before he was accepted, that's all true. Uh, this is a gorgeously produced film and a, a tremendous triumph for a young woman named Alejandra Marquez Abella. One of the things that's fascinating about the film is that it has uh, not only a Latino cast, but the writers and the producers and the director are uh, Mexican-American for the most part. The, um, the, the message of the film about the importance of family, uh, the flag-waving love of his new country that inspires uh, Jose Hernandez. By the way, Jose is going to be joining us on the show next week. Uh, all of this is intensely watchable, and even for people who aren't interested at all in the space program, uh, this will rekindle your interest that ought to be there. It's uh, a rated PG, and by the way, because this begins when the main character is a little boy, there's a special role for an inspiring teacher who made a huge difference in his life. Very appropriate viewing for kids. And uh, a million miles away, three and a half stars, and almost surely one of the best films of 2023. The uh, Haunting in Venice, which is the other big film released this week, this is in theaters. By the way, A Million Miles Away is available for streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, a Haunting in Venice is the latest from Kenneth Branagh, adapting Agatha Christie with stories, whodunits involving her classic uh, detective with the big mustache, uh, Hercule Poirot. This one follows up on Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile, and uh, this one takes place in Halloween. Now, Poirot has retired. It's supposed to be 1947. The scenes of Venice are haunting and beautiful, and particularly on Halloween night, which is when most of the movie takes place, a little bit creepy. Uh, he uh, is Poirot is brought to uh, a seance on Halloween. The medium who can speak to the dead is uh, played by Oscar winner Michelle Yeoh, who you'll remember from Everything, Everywhere, and All at Once. Um, that's uh, Oscar winner for Best Actress. She plays the medium. Uh, Tina Fey is on hand and in the cast. She plays a mystery writer who has written successful books uh, based upon Poirot and wants to get him involved in determining whether this seance uh, really can talk to the dead. 
Uh, listen, a haunting in Venice. Everyone who ever lived here falls victim to some tragedy, like her daughter a year ago. My daughter was my whole life. To hear her voice again, I would give all I have. If someone wants to be heard, we are here. That woman called the spirits, and they answered. You saw what I saw. For once in your life, admit that you are up against something bigger than you. Tonight, we are all afraid. We cannot hide from our ghosts, whether they are real or not. Uh, that, of course, uh, uh, Kenneth Branagh playing Poirot. Uh, the film uh, is actually, I think, more successful artistically than either Murder on the Orient Express or Death on the Nile. It's it's highly watchable. The action takes place in a uh, Venetian palazzo uh, in which a retired uh, opera singer presides. And uh, the way that you are kept guessing, of course, that's the whole idea of a whodunit, uh, is quite fascinating. But this film's also dark. I mean really dark and uh, there are some very scary things that happen that make the PG-13 rating I think uh, a little bit questionable however is it watchable to see Kenneth Branagh who don't forget is one of the best actors in the business uh, impersonate Hercule Poirot again who wants very much not to believe in what seems to be mounting up as evidence of the supernatural. Uh, three stars for A Haunting in Venice. Uh, the film includes uh, uh, some acting that's a little bit florid and over the top, but given the material and uh, the somewhat intoxicating mood of the film, uh, people who love Venice will see uh, gorgeous images of that great city. Speaking of gorgeous images, on uh, Monday we're going to be talking about a new children's book written by a member of Congress that shows President Trump as a leader of a fruit rebellion to take over, well, the world of Fruitland. And uh, then we'll also be talking to Chris Steyerwald, formerly of Fox, about five known unknowns for 2024 and for this greatest nation on God's green earth.